Hi, my name is Kimbra. I'm a singer, songwriter, and producer, and I just released my fourth album called A Reckoning. Well, hello. <laughs> Brand new year, same old podcast. Uh, nice to have your company. Thanks for clicking on us again. Um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, you hearing this chat. It's with Kimbra. Now, Kimbra kind of whacked us over the head in 2011 with that little song with Gautier, Somebody That I Used To Know. Yeah. It's been streamed like a gajillion times at one Arias. It won a Grammy for Record of the Year, Billboard Awards. I mean, you name it, that song won it. And you can still hear it on the radio plenty of times. Uh, Kimbra is back with a brand new album, A Reckoning. It is out now. She's going to tell us, well, right as of today, her favourite track from it. Plus, if at all, we're planning to see her live out here since she's been stuck in New York now for years and years and years. Please enjoy my chat, the first of the year, with Kimbra. Thank you so much for chatting. And uh, are you in uh, New York at the moment? Is that right? Yeah, no, I've been living here for going on eight years. So, oh, wow. Yeah, this is home. This has been home for a long time now. I know the time has just flown. <laughs> are you one of these people? Like, don't, please don't give us your address. But are you like in a big brown? I don't know much about New York, and you're gonna you're gonna get that from <laughs> from this. But are you in a big brownstone? Are you on the park? Or are you in so totally. <laughs> it's very It's very New York. It's very New York. I will say that it's like kind of old school railroad apartment, and in Manhattan, so close to all of those like very historic sites of New York. Very inspiring place to live for sure do you have your family from new zealand come and visit and like where are we (laughs) (laughs) yeah they came once and it was definitely like a culture shock you know like it's just such a different place to the agricultural center of hamilton that i was born in (laughs) new zealand (laughs) well new zealand's like every time i go to new zealand i go this is the most perfect place on earth and it's so it it, it must have been hard to leave but I, i guess for what you do for a living new york is certainly the place to be yeah, and it was Melbourne that I moved to first, you mm. know. I um I started my career really in Australia and then um moved to Los Angeles when I signed to Warner Brothers and then sort of made the move to New York for myself because it is just such a inspiring city. But um there's been many places that have that have acted as home throughout my career. So this is just one of them. Well, let's go right to the start, and you won't remember this, but I met you, um, I, I think we were all pretty drunk at the Arias because you had just had a very big <laughs> night, um, and you, you were probably uh, allowed to be drunk because you had won, and I, and I was just a hanger-oner, but um, <laughs> it, was a hu- it was a huge moment. I think it was 2011 was the, um, was the, big, the big Arias. Um, do you have any recollection of that moment and, um, and then maybe what changed after that night for you? Yeah, man, that was a crazy time of life. I felt like so many things were just kind of coming together, you know, when you work so hard for so long and you're grinding and then there's these kind of incredible mountaintop moments where, um, yeah, just everything, people are connecting with the work in such a um, genuine kind of way and you're being recognized at this level, you know, of it's it's really special. I look back on that time of my life as a real honor and, um, you know, to have shared a lot of the success with Gautier as well over that time, you know, it was like really special to do it alongside someone that I love so much as well, you know. 
is somebody that I used to know has played on the radio here still at least eight times a day. You'd be happy to know. So, <laughs> it, it's, it's still very 2011 here in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. You can't escape it, eh? <laughs> no, it's, no. It's, it's so real. Well, let's go back to the start in New Zealand and because uh, it is called Introducing. So let's get to know you a bit. You, you have um, parents who, are, I, I, from what I've read, uh, medical parents are in the medical yeah. profession so was there music playing in the house or where, where did how did you um where, how did you fit in <laughs> to all that yeah well I'm definitely a bit of the black sheep in the family I definitely had my head in the clouds from a young age and you know looked out at the mountains and would sing melodies to myself and sort of I don't know I was always a little bit drawn outside of my world to kind of I was creating imaginary worlds from a young age my dad liked the Beatles and a lot of like kind of more prog rock fusion stuff yeah, <laughs> and my mum liked really like classic songwriters like James Taylor and Carol King and stuff, you know. So it was like I had music around, but it probably wasn't um, this sort of um, career path really that I, you know was proposed to me. It was more like a hobby. But then the more that I started to do it around little pubs in New Zealand, and I was in this thing called the Rock Quest, which is like this high school band competition. Yeah. The more I did it more sort of professionally, whatever, I realized that like it really did seem to like have an impact on people and kind of made a difference, you know, like it felt like a way that I could really do something important for the world to sing for people. I could feel that it really, it meant something. And then that's when I got thinking, you know, maybe I could really do this for a job. And luckily they were actually really supportive of it. I think they wanted to see me do something that would be, you know, deeply fulfilling and I was pretty ambitious about it. So despite, even if they weren't supportive, it was pretty clear that I was going to, to go pretty hard for it, you know? Well, yeah, because you, you were very young. Cause I, say, I saw that you were you're given a guitar by your dad when you were 10, which makes me feel good because I gave my daughter, who's now 10, a guitar when she was eight. So hopefully that means she's, she'll have two years on you. No, yeah, that's right. Um, but <laughs> did, that, did that then mean that you were really seeing like your harmonies, as you were saying, looking out the windows at the mountains to maybe putting it to music and, and thinking, well, well, this is actually something I can do, as you said, for a job? Yeah, that's it. I mean, guitar was the big um, transition point for me because I went from sort of, yeah, just writing silly songs and recording them on tape cassette and, you know, actually going into like making real arrangements, you know, and like understanding chordal structure and like becoming a, a musician, you know, like someone who writes their own material and kind of has a vision for even like how they want things to sound on a record. And so, yeah, having if my first instrument... Um, guitar was kind of like it just made it all the more like yeah serious and being able to like accompany yourself you know go yeah. out and play games and that kind of thing yeah and then of course i got into like loop pedals and and sort of stacking my voice with different pieces of um you know vintage machinery at that time <laughs> it's like old school now but um yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh it's cool man it's like that's how i learned that like oh there's just so many facets to making music. I don't well, just have even to making, You're even making videos at a young age too. Like you were really doing right. it all. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. It's cool looking back and seeing how fearless I was. I mean, it's like obviously, yeah, self-doubt kind of creeps more and more into your life as you get older, I think. Like something about being really young, you're just like not really – you don't care too much about what people think. And I, and it was a kind of a beautiful naivete I had when I was young. I was just like, 
into making art. And um, yeah, I look back on those years with fondness. Were you comparing yourself to anyone? Like who were you listening to um, at that time and going, well, gosh, it would be good to be like this person? Or, or were you just really all in your own head? Christina Aguilera. I of loved course. her. <laughs> it was like Christina Aguilera and Incubus. <laughs> oh, really? I loved Incubus. Yeah. I still love Incubus. I loved Incubus. Yeah, yeah. And then I loved like some weird bands like the Mars Volta. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I had quite a oh, ride. That's brilliant. I don't think I've ever yeah, had anyone on this podcast that. say my influences are Christina Aguilera and Incubus. <laughs> that is certainly one for the promo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then yeah. I think when was the first time you sang publicly? Because I, I, I've got it here. Was it a national anthem? Is that right? But um, yeah, I was yeah. singing a lot of national anthems okay, as a cool. kid. Just the New Zealand oh national God. anthem, or just lots of national anthems? <laughs> no, 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 just just New Zealand. <laughs> okay, I, was, good. I was very niche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, keeping on brand. Yeah. I, I, I think it was just a way of kind of you know, getting to sing publicly. It was just a way that I could kind of um, get experience and um, in front of crowds. And yeah, I was as young as 12 doing these stadium um, performances, 30,000 people or something, yeah. I remember. And it was just this kind of building this foundation for feeling kind of quite, actually quite comfortable in that setting. I mean, nowadays I do actually feel like the stage is more home for me than, than off stage. you know? It's kind of where I actually feel most comfortable. And you obviously must have sang the national anthems really well because the only ones that we end up seeing on the internet are the ones where they go real bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I haven't seen any video evidence of you uh, singing the national anthem, which means you've obviously done a very good job. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, it's embarrassing yeah, to watch. Yeah, yeah. But, but she did okay, that little kid. She did all right. So then um, is, is that kind of – so obviously not when you were so young, but when did the move to Melbourne that you mentioned earlier, when did that come? Was that when things were getting real serious um, and, and you thought, let's make a go of this over in the big country that is Australia or across the ditch? Yeah, well, I was 17 when yeah, right. um, a manager called Mark Richardson found my music on MySpace. So I'd been uploading, you know, my little CDs, little MP3s to MySpace and I guess he – he found them and th thought, I'll take a risk on this girl and, you know, fund her first album, basically. So I moved, you know, straight out of high school over to Australia and my whole life was about making a debut album. So it was a very strange, as all my friends were going off to university, I was um, very single-mindedly making this, you know, this album and learning from scratch how to, to make it my, my main thing. Um, so it's a strange life, but it was also like an incredible opportunity, really, you know, mm. to just be like given this chance to focus solely on making music. So this is Vows, the debut, right? Um, was that an easy thing? Did it all just come out of you and just go, Bleh, or was this something that was that you were fine-tuning and fine-tuning and never happy with? And, and, and like, what was the labour of love like for the, for the first time? Oh, album? it was a labour. It was a labour, yes. Mm. I worked with Francois Titez, who, of course, produced somebody that I used to know as yeah. well. And, you know, I, I said to my manager at the time, I said, I want to work with the guy that made those Gautier records because yeah. they sound so awesome. And that's how I met Frank was because I was just a fan of Gautier. Yeah. Who he ended up, you know, connecting us and all of that. But, um, yeah, I just – I remember – wanting to get the music out so quick and feeling like I was ready. And he would always say, no, you, you know, you've got to work harder on the chorus. You've got to go back and watch this film and rewrite this lyric. And, you know, he'd give me homework every week. And it really was a grind. I had to like, it, you know, I had 
yeah, homework. I had things to, to, to develop and hone and craft. And um, it was many years of just kind of feeling very impatient. You know what it's like when you're 18 and you're ready to take over the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I was definitely pushed by my team to, to develop the material. And, yeah, I'm glad I did, though. A debut record's very important. You know, it's like your first impression on the world. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and then and then comes the all important second album, which either to, you saw to great heights, or we've never heard, never hear from you again. <laughs> I yes, was it around the first album? Because I'm I'm seeing 2013 must have been a huge year for you because that's when things uh, it feels like went really different. Like you had a song on a hit TV show, you performed it on Saturday Night Live, and then the Grammys come along. Like, was there a moment in all that that? you didn't feel like any of this was real or did it just feel the way it was progressing and everything felt normal? Was it on the right trajectory? Well, it did feel like it was happening fast for sure. Mm. I mean, especially when you put in the context of waiting for so long to put material out. And even though I was young, it it, it did feel like many years of just kind of really waiting um, to make a stamp on, on the world, you know, when I felt so ready. And then all of a sudden it was just all happening within a matter of months that felt quite surreal. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was touring nonstop. So there wasn't a lot of chance to sort of stop and digest things. People ask how much of it do you remember? And I say, well, not all that much to be honest, because it was just like, uh, it was just one city to the next. Mm. And, you know, people would tell me the song was number one all over the world at the time. But it's a very hard thing to properly understand, you know. It, it's it's kind of abstract, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's like your song. Yeah, it's just a hard. I mean, maybe the most real thing is when you're at concerts and everyone is singing, yes. you know, the words to the song. I think that's one of the more tangible things. Is like, yeah, suddenly being on stage supporting Foster the People or doing things with Gautier and people just like intimately knowing all the material and it feeling so fast, you know, how quickly it happened. So. I feel like it must be hard as an artist because in your mind, you're obviously, you create, right? That's what you do for a living. But then, but because you want it to be consumed too, we're back in time a couple of years when we're like loving the song that you made a few years ago and finally just asking you to play it at every show. But your head is maybe, you know, with album two and, and, and songs on that. Yeah. How do you, how do you kind of work between those worlds when you, as you said, you're going city to city playing songs, but you're obviously already trying to create a, a second album. Right. No, I think you really do have to treat them like different, you know, characters in your life. It's like Vows was its its own little world and I had to go and play those songs. But you're right. I was already thinking about the next. I've, and already I've released a reckoning, but I'm absolutely on to the next body of work because it's a way that I don't become too, um, I guess, like – it, it can be dangerous to stay um, married to a single piece of work and believe that that's like, you know, your yeah. whole creative statement. I think <laughs> yeah. that it's really important to keep like, and it helps you, you know, when you get great praise for something that's beautiful, but when you get criticism, which naturally you will get as an artist as well, it helps you detach a little bit. It's like, hey, that's one facet of who I am. I'm on to the next now, you know? Yeah, that's it. It's kind of just like the way to preserve sanity as well when you're doing such personal work 
and subject to like a lot of hurt if people don't like it, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in, in, um, I don't, I don't want to dwell on the past too much, but I just want to talk about the second album and then we'll get to a reckoning because that, that, so it feels like with the second album, um, the golden echo, that was when you had a lot of different collaborators as well. How, how did that, yeah. how did that all come about? Like you had Daniel Johns on there, John Legend, Matt Bellamy from Muse, like, Huge artists in their own right. How how is it working with them to create your vision? Well, I think that's when I became really interested in being a producer, like this idea of bringing different people into the room. Yeah, Thundercat and Daniel Johns. Like, how weird is that? Like, what does that sound Yeah. That sounds like something I've never heard before. And being (laughs) producing those people, being like, now you do this and I want you to jump in there and do that. And let's see what – the experimentation. Yeah. The kid at the playground that's just like, what would happen if I threw that color at the wall with that color? Um, and because I'd had this great success with a song that was pretty non-traditional, to be honest, like it wasn't the most, you know, normal top 40 pop song you've ever heard. Right. It mm. was like a kind of slow burner. Yeah. Um, it kind of made me like think that anything's possible in pop music. So I just decided to, um, get as, uh, you know, challenge myself as much as possible. And I was lucky that most of these collaborators that I respected and admired now instantly seem to know who I was actually, you know, gave a damn about me. And like, you know, that's a pretty massive privilege, right? You go from being an absolute nobody yeah. to suddenly people know your name from this kind of number one song. And so from there I was like, well, if I can gain access to these people, what would it look like to then like take that privilege and make music with like a completely wacky collection of like all my favorite diverse um, artists across the spectrum of my musical influence, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was kind of like a wild experiment. <laughs> Absolutely. Being a producer though, how, how, I mean, look, obviously it's a different job, but how, how did you have to train yourself differently as an artist or is the fact that you are an artist that makes you a better producer? Well, I mean, a producer is there to serve the song first and foremost, you know, it's like, how can we tell the story in the most um, memorable way, you know, and being the artist as well is, you know, it's challenging to, um, there's sort of two different hats. So the artist is there, you know, getting very emotionally attached to the work and, and, you know, performing it with conviction. The producer is not too overly attached to the work. It's just thinking objectively about how to make it as good as possible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of like two different roles. And when I'm producing, I'm, I'm sort of, I have to take my ego out of it. Right. Yeah. And just think about what's, what's best for the song. Whereas the artist comes in and they're, you know, if, when they're not producing, they're thinking mainly about just giving a great performance, but the rest of it is left up to the director of the film. Right. So when you're, when you're doing both, you're having to kind of oscillate between these two, um, ways of, of creating. But I like that challenge. I like, it's boring just being kind of one thing all the time. So. Oh, of course, of course. So tell us about a reckoning, and I, I hate saying it, but obviously it's, we have to talk about it. Was it a a pandemic project? Like, was it was it something mm-hmm. that came out of the fact that you couldn't leave your house for a couple of years? <laughs> 
A lot of it was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I started it before all of this, um, you know, a, a apocalypse took place. Mm. So many of the songs were brought back from earlier years to, you know, as early as 2016, you know, some of these songs have been lying around and I was like, let me shine them up, give them a different sound world. Maybe I'll like them again or like them in a new way. Mm. And then as pandemic struck, I needed to express myself and began to sit at my piano at home and write many of the ballads on this record um, during that time. And, you know, it became a new beast really, you know, in light of all that we were going through. It's like, I knew that I had new, I had more things to say. I had new things to say that were relevant to all that was taking place in the world. Um, but it's cool that it started before all that because it kind of, it represents a transition time for me. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. or in the after. Yeah. yeah. But having said, as you said earlier, that you feel like you're at home on the stage, was, that was obviously the hardest part for you that you couldn't be doing that while you were making this record as well. So you must have felt good. What was that first show like? Can you remember the first show back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I did a small tour where people were masked and that was a very strange experience to mm. play to people, you know, where you only, we can't really see their faces. Um, but just recently I went back out on the road through Europe and finally got to like really get up close with, with fans in the crowd again. And it was like, yeah, I just... It's a spiritual experience, you know, when you have a bunch of people in a room together all taking in the same piece of art and having a similar series of responses. It's like we need that connection. And it was very difficult to have that taken away um, for, I mean, almost, yeah, four years or something. Were you in New York during that time? Yeah, yeah. the whole time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, if uh, people are listening to this now, and obviously because they're on their podcast, uh, they've got their earbuds in and they want to jump to your album straight after this chat, um, chat, is there a track for you right now on this very day? Because I'm assuming you love all of them and, and as you should, but is there a track that you would, you know, do the hard sell on someone? If you're listening to this, what, what track should they listen to to get a feel for this album? Mm, that's tough. I mean, um, we can just well, say go from the start and don't be an idiot. Just go from the start and don't hit shuffle. <laughs> I think right now... I have like a real um, sentimental vibe towards uh, the song called The Way We Were, yeah. which I think is like track four on the record. Um, and I don't know, I guess it's just got a very anthemic quality about it, but yeah. also kind of my favorite sorts of the songs are the ones that can make you like simultaneously dance and like you know, bop, mm. but also like you might cry. <laughs> like, you know, that sort of like melancholy dance song. Who doesn't love dance yeah. crying? Everyone loves dance Yeah, crying. the dance crying, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's got that DNA, you know, of like an, an emotional bop. <laughs> <laughs> well, Reckoning's out now. You should be very proud of it. It's a, be it's a beautiful record um, and we just love hearing from you. And are we going to see you here soon? Are you going to Get out of New York and come to Australia and do some shows. Are they on the horizon? <laughs> yeah, man, of course. Yeah. Like, I am, I'm so excited to get back. Australia is where my career all started, you know, so it's like yeah. I really want to come and honour the early, the OG fans. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, nothing is confirmed as of yet, but yeah, I yeah. know that it is all in the works. We're talking about it and, you know, planning on it. Because 2023 is crazy. Like, oh, there are so many shows in Australia at the moment, oh, obviously because yeah. it's summer, but everyone seems like they're here now because they haven't been here for years. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and everyone's so down to be yeah. playing shows, so yeah. it's so congested. I know. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. So we, we can't wait to see you soon. Um, this podcast is called Introducing, so I, I, I ask this of everyone, and it is a question without notice, but is there anyone you're listening to right now that you'd like to introduce us to? Well, I do really like this artist from Amsterdam, actually, that goes under the name um, Ginge, like G-I-N-G-E. I, I think, like that, I think Ginge. Yeah, she's got ginger hair, and so I think she's just you know yeah. going all out on, on that branding. <laughs> but um, man, she's super sick. She kind of reminds me of Remy Wolf. I don't know if people yeah, know yeah. that artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got like a very yeah funky, soulful kind of bedroom beats vibe indie thing going on. It's great. I love that. Um, I love the rapper Tommy Raps. That is also on my album, A Reckoning. Oh yeah. But um, he makes these amazing like songs every day on his instagram and i yeah i love him he's he's just tommy raps on instagram and everyone should check him out he's my good friend i love it thank you so much a reckoning it's out now kimber it's such a pleasure to chat to you thanks for your time i know it's late in new york congratulations on the album and we can't wait to see you so make sure you let us know when you come out yes thank you so much all right i'll see you in the future 